Hi everyone again, this is Jess, creator of Palm Press, and I'm with Dean from Tech House Design Studio. We made it to episode two. That's pretty cool. Last week, Dean mentioned that when you have an idea, a product idea, how do you know if people will like your idea? How do you go about trying to validate certain questions you have about it? Um, so we want to talk about that today. Jumping in, how we did it with Palm Press. The initial proof that I started with is Amazon reviews. They're so amazing because to me, it's this unsolicited feedback that people post and usually assuming they're not getting paid to post something. It's raw, it's candid, it's constructive. And there's so many, there are so many reviews out there. So what I initially did with when I had the general concept for Palm Press is think about all the alternative products out there. You can read all the reviews. People tell you what they love about it, what they don't like about it, what they wish were different. And to me, that's such, you know, a, a rich amount of data. I would just like copy and paste things into a Google document that I thought was really an interesting um, piece of thought. And after you collect enough things, you can start to kind of cut the data a bit, cluster themes that you see bubbling up. And that was super helpful because you can, for me, my initial qualm with the AeroPress that I was using that I love the quality of coffee it made. I just wish, you know, does this come in something other than a brewing chamber where coffee contacted plastic, for instance. And just looking at the reviews, I saw that other reviews express that desire for the same thing. It's like, okay. Well I got a question about that. Um, how do you stay objective in that process? Because uh, I think it's easy to go out and look for someone to agree with you and yeah. check the box and say, oh, see, other people also find a French press to be fragile. Right. Uh, how do you balance that? I think one thing is going to a, into a space where you know the feedback on a product could be anything. So if I'm looking at Amazon reviews or social media comments on a product or whatever it is, you kind of know that you haven't asked these people a specific question, like a leading question to see if they mm -hmm. would, you know, say yes or no. It's sort of, you're, you're truly a fly on the wall and going into a space. I mean, it's fair to say that um, reviews can be positive or negative. Mm -hmm. uh, and if we're merely looking at coffee makers and saying, here's all the negative reviews of coffee makers and here are all the positive reviews of coffee makers. We'll start to see some patterns emerging, I imagine, where there's common comments on materials, common yeah. comments on durability, common comments on usability, comments on price. I think there's, I just want to add, maybe state of mind comes into this as well. And if, mm -hmm. if you're going to be honest about this process, you have to have a willingness to be wrong. Um, it's very popular to talk about failing fast in startup culture. Um, you know, there's no quicker failure than proving that there's no traction for your idea through a little bit of research. Um, there's, there's so many opportunities, uh, best to put ourselves out of business in the first 15 minutes. And, you know, uh, it's, it's only after having questioned every single aspect of it that you realize, oh, it's, the idea is still standing, it's still here. Um, maybe there's actually a business worth investing in. Yeah. I think when I called Dean to start working with Palm Press, I, I may have had those initial assumptions backed by online conversations and reviews and internet research that I was seeing. 
Um, but it just didn't stop there. That wasn't enough to say like, this is a full go ahead on the desirability of this product. So the second is talking to real people. So myself, um, conducting surveys, conducting interviews or informal conversations with real people. And for that, you get to know so many, you get to learn more things about what people think and what they do in the context of what they do day to day. I think my favorite data gathering technique that I did was conducting a couple rounds of surveying. So what I would do was, Dean, I think we had like a drawing of the palm press or something like that, like something very, very basic, but I didn't want the survey just to be, what do you think about this drawing? And what do you think about my product? And would you buy it? Because it doesn't allow you to again, just like learn about the space in general before you focus in on your solution too soon. So my survey would be a series of questions where using Google Forms, it would show other alternative coffee makers. And then it would ask just very broad, open questions like, are you familiar with this? What are your initial impressions? Or what is your impression about this? That sort of thing. And I did it for, let's say, a handful of alternative products. And then the last product I showed was a drawing of the palm press and it didn't have to be perfect and that's okay but just ask very brief questions about it as well and just are you familiar with this what are your your initial impressions as if it were just like a product on the market and i got back initially so much information about if positioning is so important and you're trying to position your product against what's already out there you want to know what people think about what things are already out there what they think is close to perfect what they think is convenient, but it really misses a mark on a lot of things. So they have to make compromises when using it. Um, I learned all those things. And then finally kind of learned the initial impression of when they look at this drawing of the palm press, what words they would use to describe it. So I think that was pretty interesting. After cutting that data, I think it kind of narrowed in on more specific questions that I could ask in my next round of surveys. And in conducting the surveys, I would email it to my friends and actually ask them to forward it on to a handful of other people that I didn't know. So that, um, to your point, Dean, it eliminated some bias. If people knew me and kind of knew what project I was working on, they might be more inclined to be nice or maybe give it a certain type of thought that they normally wouldn't if it were just presented to them by a stranger. So I just wanted to remove that as much as possible. I like the way you describe your surveys by talking about existing products. Um, I think that's extremely helpful in getting the people you're surveying to kind of like check in to the space and kind of think about their own thoughts uh, by providing a little context so that by the time they're into the second or third product, it is a, it becomes a, a spectrum to them and they're like, oh, it's... Yeah. And they, they've started to like sort of think about their own answers by the time you're asking about your thing they know what you're asking right it doesn't it feels like it doesn't just come out of thin air and right away it's like what do you think of this coffee maker and it's sort of like i never even thought twice about coffee makers in general it's it's almost very human to map things out in your head and view things comparatively and in relation to one another maybe you don't have exactly a thought on something but you can say it's more x than this it's more commercial than this. It's less clunky than this, that sort of thing. So I found that to be very useful. We found that to be very, very useful. Other types of data gathering that occurred were interviews and candid conversations. 
they were easier to do. I think after we had that initial subset of data and we knew there were things that we wanted to dig into that just required more context and more of an open conversation. So we went into those interviews with, you know, maybe we felt like, hey, this custom, this type of customer is forming that could be an early adopter. Let's think about who we know like that in our lives and, and have a conversation with them. Yeah, you don't want to do just one thing, right? You don't want to just search on the internet. You don't want to just send out a survey that while things are standardized and easier to make sense of the data in a clean way, it may not capture some of the richness or, or additional thoughts that people might have if you hadn't spoken with them. And finally, we even went deeper to do more immersive observations. So instead of someone just saying, yeah, I would love to use this at work. I hate my office coffee. I visited a couple offices and or co-working spaces or things like that. Everything from you know, visiting, I think Dean, we visited Frank in one of the co-working spaces and just seeing him use a palm press pretty seamlessly. Whereas I went to another office in New York and they're just, they didn't even have a sink. So just sort of realizing, okay, this is not, you know, something that is the same experience for everyone. If we told everyone this is great for your office, it wouldn't be true. So very interesting that way. Other immersive things is going to actual people's homes and doing interviews and just seeing what their kitchen counter currently look like, what types of things do they carry. I actually had someone kind of empty out their purse, like this is the sort of thing I carry every day. And you can kind of see, you know, what objects and how much space they, how big or how heavy an object they were willing to carry around in their purse every day, things like that. And again, it's hard to just say that in a survey and have that visual in front of you of what someone's situation is. And, you know, as part of the larger design process and product development, um, this kind of study of behavior starts to inform more than just the desirability of your product. It, in, it informs the ergonomics, it informs material selection, the weight, mm -hmm. the size. Um, we start to really understand uh, the the use cases, the lifestyle that we're trying to design for that really gives a uh, body to the final product that we're going to make. Like, yeah. especially once you, once you get off the page and like get into a person's kitchen mm -hmm. uh, where like the tool itself really starts to take shape. Dean, you said sometimes when you start to understand a space and the people within it so well, that when you need to change up something or do a second project or whatever it is, that's sort of the benefit, right? You didn't focus so much on one solution and validating it. You really try to understand a space as a whole. After Pompress had been on the market for months to now, we always get comments saying, love the Pompress, would love either a bigger version, a version that can make more servings, something to that nature, right? And that's sort of popping up here and there. Mm -hmm. And I don't think we looked at it right away and said, oh, okay, let's just start designing what we would want in a multi-serving or a larger brewer. Let's kind of revisit the space and talk to people again and really understand what they mean when they say that. Why are they saying that? How are they using their existing coffee makers in real life? So with the second project that we are in the early stages of, I would say we're taking a way more proper approach than I did with the first product, which was heavily influenced by an initial idea. And this time sort of 
trying to look more at the space in general. We thought that this would start with interviews. We talked at first about what types of coffee drinkers generally there were. So there could be, you know, the one that has to make coffee for themselves and someone else, a partner or a roommate, someone else in the morning, every morning, the person that's always pretty much just going to coffee shops every morning, um, et cetera, et cetera. Different types of coffee drinkers that we've run into over the past few years. Then we talked about people we knew that fit in certain profiles. And then we scheduled interviews with each of those parties. And we also, before the interview, came up with questions that we were very curious about and also like how we would phrase it during the interview to make it as open-ended as possible. Not to say that we can't follow up with very specific questions, but things in general that we wanted to generally ask each, each person and then some specific questions as well. So we conducted all those interviews. We split up. Dean and I weren't necessarily in every interview together. Scheduling an hour is really, really great to give enough time to break the ice. But like Dean said, people aren't thinking about their coffee makers day to day so deeply. So you do want to give that time for those thoughts to sort of open up. Then we got together. We shared the Q&A from the interviews and we transferred those answers onto post-it notes. So each post-it note had like a thought, a data point. We started to evaluate the data and recognize themes, not only within each coffee drinker type, but we started recognizing themes across multiple coffee drinkers. I think the, the great value I got is it kind of gives you a, a reset and a restart after being really mm-hmm. deep into a, a problem and a product. You just get saturated. Um, and sometimes you, you just kind of like lose the plot. So it kind of gets you right back to the beginning with people and puts you in that, that very um, early mindset as well. And so, and so it's just a very important part of the process is to uh, get naive again. I love that so much because how easy is it to feel like we know so much, like we can create a second and third product, no problem. But it really was wonderful to, I think, yes, start point zero. That needs to be the mindset of the interview. Mm-hmm. So um, it, it, it forces you because you, you can't interview, you can't cut a person short and say, yeah, yeah, I got it. But like you really have to embrace it that, in, that, with that, in that respect. Right. Like basically we, sh- we were barely talking you shouldn't be talking very much during these interviews except to follow up on something that they said that you thought was interesting. You want them to keep elaborating on. And that was awesome, I think, to hear what came out. And because of it, we had so many more follow-on questions, but that's great. It shows you how, how many little things like I hadn't thought of or I hadn't thought of in a certain way. For instance, I'm looking at our interview notes and some things that showed up are people who are even discerning coffee drinkers often wing their coffee measurements, even if it means an uncertain outcome that they're not happy with. Um, so measurement became, consistent measurement became a theme. Uh, couples often wake up at different times. They'll commonly share one batch of coffee and they use different ways to keep the coffee warm and different compensating behaviors. And that was really fascinating to me. Some people would use a burner some people used, you know, a thermal mug. Some people just let it go cold, but re-put it in the microwave, you know, things like that. So 
we learned so much. It's really cool. I could keep going on and on, but, and even if you pull themes from your data, you want to record it and then relook at the data again fresh and just like try to cut it another way and say, and just define other correlations as possible. But that's where we are. Absolutely. Changing frames of reference is yes. um, very important for building empathy around the problem, seeing it from all the angles. Absolutely. Thanks guys for listening again. Episode two, it's a wrap. Mm-hmm. Any questions or feedback, things you'd like us to talk about, please email me at jess at palmcrest.coffee. Dean is reachable at dean at techhousedesign.com. We'll see you next time. Thank you. Thank you.